was looking at the big book, reading the big book versus my big book. And my, I'm like, wow, my big book, the Bible that I've read all my life, looks so much like this big book. And I was just fascinated that my life had been like this. Do the next right thing. You know, do that next right thing. That just pushes us all. And, you know, the steps are simple, but they're a must, I believe. And there were must in my life for it to be functional and to have the family that we have, the solid family taking care of each other, doing the next right thing. Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Oh my gosh, Jay, what an amazing week we've had. It has been really fun. It has been jam-packed fun. Yes. It's been busy. It's been crazy with all of our tours and visitors this week. Yeah, it was exhausting. The weekend, I literally felt like I could have just laid on the couch and done nothing. I kind of did. (laughs) I'm jealous. I was so tired. Two of our visitors, Candy Finnegan and Jeannie Griffin, came over to my home on Saturday. They checked out of the hotel and they're like, we want to come see the house and visit with you. And they came over and they were there for a few hours and I actually fell asleep on the sofa talking to them. Oh my and, gosh. And of course, Candy said, well, are we keeping you up? <laughs> <laughs> She's not going to let you get away with anything. I know, nothing. I was like, Candy, I'm so sorry. I'm exhausted. This has been a crazy week. Well, how about welcome to understanding the human condition? That, you know what? What an amazing one. <laughs> that is why. It, my human condition was exhausted <laughs> this weekend or this last week with we had a lot of visitors. Mark Cantor was here. Several people were here, and we just had yeah. such a good time. It was a good week. It was a good, busy, productive week in a number of ways, yeah. but it was never a dull moment with those two <laughs> ladies, for sure. Exactly. And yeah. then Tonda Chapman came over, yeah, and she visited with us, and so we did a podcast with Candy, then again, Jenny Griffin, and Tonda Chapman, yes. and it was amazing. It was it so was. good. In fact, you had the brilliant idea to say, let's not make this one podcast because mm-hmm. we talked and talked and talked. We cut it up into three different podcasts yeah, three and we may even chop it up even more. It was really great. It was nice because you guys were able to talk about so many things in a very real way. Yeah. And there was such commonality in different sections. It just made sense that easier. we share yeah, we yeah. with our guests. It was easy to cut it up. What are we going to do with like section one? So part one today Uh is uh, spirituality and family of choice. So I took the title from something that Jeannie actually says during the podcast that really resonated with me. And she said, from the bridge of reason to the shore of faith. I love that. And I thought, you know, regardless of what your thoughts on spirituality are, you know, we all fit somewhere in the universe and we all have something we call family. Mm -hmm. 
So in this episode, we're really going to focus on what that definition of family is for each of you that were on the podcast. Right, because my definition of family, obviously, is my chosen family, right, which is Candy, Jeannie, of course, Honda Chapman, who mm-hmm. was here. Right. And everybody has their own definition of family. And right. it's a great piece of the episode. So you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome, everybody, to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm your host, Dr. James Flowers, and I'm so Excited today to have Tonda Chapman, Candy Finnegan, and Jeannie Griffin with me. Candy and Jeannie are both from Los Angeles and for visiting this week. Yes, visiting you. Well, yeah, welcome. And Tonda, of course, is visiting Jay Flowers Health Institute today. And Tonda, it's good to have you. This is our first podcast together. It is. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. How was y'all's flight yesterday? Very good. Very nice. Thank you. Do you really want to know? (laughs) <laughs> you, you sat next to an interesting character. A 93-year-old man who I just couldn't keep up with, you know, but his family thanked me for sitting with him. Yeah, exactly. So, you babysat so all the way to Houston from Los Angeles. I yeah, know. he was very cute. Yeah. So Candy is one of my dearest friends and colleagues. We've known each other for, God, 30 years, probably yeah. way back many, many, many years ago. And Candy has been all kinds of things in her life. She's been an amazing wife, an amazing mother, an amazing human being. Gosh, an interventionist. What's that? An amazing alcoholic. Yeah, oh, Uh, thank you. You didn't even get to see that. (laughs) I didn't even get to see that. I've only known you in your recovery year. That's true. That's right. But obviously in long-term recovery and just an amazing all-around human being and someone that I look up to, and I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, I just didn't. I was kind of in the beginning of the Jay Flowers Health Institute, and it was a little teeny little apartment. And I thought, <laughs> I know this is going to work, but look at us now. You yeah. know, this is magnificent. I'm Thank so you. proud of you. I mean, I know how hard you work. Thank you. And I know your ethics. And that's why we've remained good friends. Is right. I, the old joke is we hate the same people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I know. Jeannie has been a longtime dear friend of mine as well. Jeannie, you're an author, you're a mother, you're a mental health therapist, you're a marriage and family therapist. I think it'd be amazing for the audience to know about you're also a shaman. Mm, yes. Yeah. I don't call myself that. I call myself a shamanic practitioner. Okay. Because it was so odd how I came to that. I guess I've been on a spiritual journey my entire life. I just keep going to the wrong address. <laughs> so right. I had to do that for a while. Knocking on the wrong door. <laughs> then I came out of an experience. I lost my father when I was 15 to alcoholism. And my mother died of cancer, which I personally say is the codependent disease. I lost her when I was 21. And as a result, I was very angry with God. So for about 10 years, I was not speaking to whatever this thing God was. And after I had my daughter, I thought, you know, I need to allow her to at least know and choose for herself. So I was finding probably the most solace in nature. And then I moved to Los Angeles. I ran away from home when I was 50, moved to Los Angeles. (laughs) That's five zero. Yeah, five zero. (laughs) And I had lived in Texas most of my life. I was born in Chicago. And then moved to South Texas when I was 11 months old. And Texans never accepted me because I was an outsider. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, so as a result, 
I began, I moved, ran away from home and went to law school. I was, had been in the addiction world and mental health world for years. And then I thought, you know what? I'm tired of being poor. And so I'm going to go to law school and have somebody mean in front of me to say, you want to talk to her? Put down $5,000. That's right. And so I did that for a while and I thought, I don't want to do this. So I'm driving down Venice Boulevard in Los Angeles and I hear on the radio back in those days, there's a gathering of the shaman and the healers at Big Bear. And I thought, I have to go. I thought, why do I have to go? <laughs> Where did that come from? And I have a 14-year-old Honda. I don't think it'll get up the hill. <laughs> and I thought, I don't even know where it is. And, you know, I, South Texas, it was everything was flat. Wow. The highest thing was grain, you know. Right. So it's like mountains. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. know what to do with mountains. Anyway, that started that journey. Yeah. And I went to see them, visit them. And there was a woman that was there. And I went and talked to her and said, like a session. And I showed up at her place. And I said, I think we have work to do together but i don't know quite what and i'd given myself permission to run if she made me eat a raw chicken or something <laughs> and so she said you've come to us to learn how to be an elder and i burst into tears i knew she was right but i had no idea what that meant yeah. and so i started working with her and was in a three-year kind of school sure and began learning how to listen to my intuition and do some shamanic work and do stuff that's called soul retrievals mm -hmm. and it went dovetailed really well with my work with individuals and families in dealing with trauma and at a spiritual way of journeying and asking spirit helpers and ancestors to work with you. So it began a different kind of spiritual work and combined it with my 12-step work in recovery. So today I use it with clients and I also teach other people how to go on their own journeys and yeah. listen to working with the other beings in nature. Yeah, so. that's amazing. You know, something that I was thinking of when you were telling me that, and maybe I'd love to hear from both of you on this, because you have so much experience in this realm of addiction. I think between the two of you, you have more than 70 years of recovery. Well, yeah. She's an old broad. <laughs> A little more than 70 years, people, between these two women. Yeah. That's amazing in itself. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, something that, that we see all the time in addiction recovery is people will come into treatment and say, I don't want to do the 12 steps. I don't want to talk about mm -hmm. God. I don't want God in my life. Mm -hmm. I've had a horrible life. Whether it's addiction or mental health mm -hmm. or failure to launch or anything else, when you start bringing God or spirituality into it, People just tense their body. So and so why don't you talk to the audience a little bit about your approach to introducing God or having a higher power and that it's not everybody doesn't have the same God. Exactly. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I'm a retired Irish Catholic <laughs> and, uh, you know, I hadn't done Catholicism right. Yeah. You have to count how many times you lie in a week. Mm -hmm. I mean... I had like 10 minutes on Saturday night when I wasn't going to hell. Right. And the rest of the time, I couldn't <laughs> keep track. I'd have a little book. I'd go online. And, you know, it's like I gave up. Can't you see? So, you know, when I got sober, I didn't think it had anything to do with spirituality. Yeah. And reading the big book, it kind of scared me, you know. I remember hmm. the first meeting I went to at the end of the meeting, they said the Lord's Prayer in this woman next to me didn't know it and I thought oh honey you know you missed some fun <laughs> you know and I thought how is all of this incorporated you know yeah. and the 
second step of the 12-step program is came to believe. It doesn't say you got it, you must, and if you don't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can, in my own way, come to believe something. But you got to prove it, you know? And one of the reasons I got into intervention, oddly enough, was when I met Dr. Vern Johnson, who, you know, was the beginning of this process of intervention. He was an Episcopal minister. And he was teaching that you can't do this work unless you believe in the spiritual. You don't walk into a family that you don't know and ask them to tell their deepest, darkest secrets unless you take somebody in there with you that will comfort you as you're comforting them. And that isn't what it looked like on the outside to me. And so I thought, that's my job. You know, when somebody gets, you know, really down and go, I've been praying for this and it didn't work. And I go, hey, he sent me. And I really do feel that way. I feel like I do a spiritual work. And for many years, and I just didn't talk about it because it wasn't an accepted situation in that process. And I thought, you people are crazy. And a minister started this. So how could it not be, you know? And along the way, I think I've been introduced to different levels of spirituality. Some of it, you know, is pretty crazy. But, you know, we don't get to tell you how you feel and in 12-step. And that's the magic of it. That's right. I don't think you're going to stay unless you have some kind of a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Because here's a whole bunch of liars, cheats, and thieves sitting in a room. <laughs> and you can't lie. you got to tell the truth. And if that is a spiritual manifestation, I don't know what is. <laughs> exactly. You know, you got, you know, every kind of person. And we are non-judgmental. Yeah. And so... That's a spirit to me within itself. And I met Jeannie years ago, and I had always been fascinated and really loved American Indian tradition. And I'm from Kansas and the Plains Indian, which is a very different Indian. Yes, it is. And she started, you know, talking to me and said, I'm going to do a workshop and you have to do it. And I went, I don't think. And, you know, and we're going to find your spirit animal. I'd always had a spirit animal, but I just didn't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) I thought... And oddly enough, it's a horse. I love it. Wow. So it's, you know, and hers is a polar bear. And I, you know, I can't find enough of them. Right. So, you know, one of them. Many. So, you know, I mean, we are fortunate enough, as you know, and James and I, to gravitate towards each other in trust and in love. Because it's getting hard to find. Absolutely. You know, and our business is dealing with terminally ill people. Yeah. And we have yeah. to always believe they can get better. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know any other business that does this. Yeah. And when I got into the business, Jeannie and I talked about it so much, it wasn't competition. Everybody was fighting for the person that was sick. And we've gone by the wayside, you know. Yeah. It's money does not bring sobriety. No. I don't care how much you have. No. In fact, the more money we see the more difficult it is to maintain your sobriety in my experience. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and speaking of money and the patient and families, let's talk a little bit about family. And my family is sitting right here. My family is sitting in this room right now. You're all my family, but my sister is sitting right here next to me. Kanda, of course, is my sister today and was my sister-in-law for 21 years. And it is so important to have family in your life in some capacity. And as we all know, I come from one dysfunctional family, right? 
And Candy, you were saying, gosh, James, everything you've ever built, you've always included family. You've always had family in it. It's always and, been so primary with you. It's primary with me and my heart. One, because I don't have a lot of it, right? As I come from that dysfunctional South Texas mm -hmm. uh, family system. And my mother's passed away, my father's passed away, and everybody in my family practically really has passed away. And I'm closest to my two nieces, Courtney and Marie. And I have other family that, unfortunately, we see each other every once in a while. But my closest right here is Tonda Chapman. And talk about family and believing in family and believing in God and being part of the spiritual world in recovery. Tonda, talk a little bit about yourself. I've worked with you for, God, 23 years now. I remember talking half of my to you life. The, half of your life. <laughs> yeah. I remember talking to you about moving to Houston from Dothan, Alabama. Okay. And I want to tell a quick story real quick about your father because I love her father like my own father. And Jeannie, her dad, of course, lives in Alabama in the piney woods of Alabama. Uh -huh. Okay. Rural Alabama. And we were going down to McAllen because Tonda and Michael and I had an office in McAllen. And so her mom and dad had flown over to Houston, or maybe they drove over to Houston. And we said, let's all get in the car and drive down to McAllen together. Well, her father had never been to South Texas. <laughs> so I'm driving and her father's in the right seat. And he's sitting there and he's just kind of wringing his hands. And we're just past Robstown. Oh, dear. Robstown, Texas. And he's just kind of doing this. And he's kind of looking out the windows and he's just dead silent. And I was like, Mr. Beard, are you okay? And he just looks at me and he said, there isn't a tree in sight. <laughs> <laughs> I, was just, like, I was like, well, get ready for the next three three hour that's drive right. to McAllen, Texas, because there's not going to be a tree in sight. <laughs> You're on and the he's King like, Ranch. He's like, I have never, we drove through the King Ranch. Yeah. And he's like, I have never seen land mm -hmm. that is this stripped with yeah. no trees. But it was just hysterical yeah. because he was in such deep thought about the lack of trees in and South where Texas. He came and where he came from. Yeah. I was so claustrophobic in North Carolina the first time <laughs> I went with that mountain right there. Because yeah. the highest thing I ever knew was grain. Right. It's like, no, nothing can be over my, yeah. my <laughs> waist or chest. Yeah. Can't have this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even when I go home, I call it home to Alabama to their family's home. I get claustrophobic in the woods sometimes. Going, yeah. gosh, you can't see the sunrise right. early, and you can't see the sunset. You see the color in the sky. Right. But anyway, talk about family and your the role that family plays in your life because you order it in a particular life in a particular way. So talk about that. Let me talk about the trees to begin with. When we did move to Texas okay. twenty three years ago, I never realized how much I missed green. Even though we have some green in Houston. We don't have forests like right. we have in Alabama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that really was, it was really hard for me to get yeah. used to that. It's just a total different change in scenery. Yeah. So that there's your trees. They comfort me. They make you claustrophobic. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the way we have to approach people that are looking for recovery. Everyone comes from a different place. Mm -hmm. And what I found that one commonality is the people who bring family in mm -hmm. and the family takes a part in their recovery so much more successful. You know, I was looking at the big book, reading the big book versus my big book. And my, I'm like, wow, my big book, the Bible that I've read all my life, looks so much like this big book. And I was just fascinated that my life had been like this. Do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, do that next right thing. That just pushes us all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the steps are simple, but they're a must, I believe. And there were must in my life for it to be functional. 
and to have the family that we have, the solid family, taking care of each other, doing the next right thing, getting out of our own head, doing things for others. It's the way I'd lived my life. And it was fascinating when we did come here, we were working with chronic pain clients yeah. and we were started losing those because they would go home at night. It was all outpatient work. They'd go home at night. They'd go see their doctor, get more pills, drink a little on the side, and their heads weren't clear enough for us to help. And Dr. Flowers told me one day, you know what? We're going to have to get these guys out of their environment. We're going to have to put them in a place where their head can be clean and they can begin to really heal. They can think clearly. And so we brought them in and, you know, that worked great. Started working great until the day the lady came in and we had family weekend and saw a lady. She was rocking in that rocking chair so hard that I could tell she was agitated. Ma'am, are you okay? I'm okay. My husband came home from here and he's so happy. He's starting to run marathons and he hadn't been able to walk in years. He's so darn happy and he thinks I should be. <laughs> that was the bell went off of family programming. Yeah. We need to educate the family. What can they do to participate to when their loved one comes home because their loved one's been in treatment 30, mm -hmm. 60, 90 days? They've been at home still simmering over what they, their loved one did before they came to treatment. Right. And so the beauty of bringing our family program, having people like you guys come in and educate families, work with them, it's just, it's huge. It's as big as your spiritual component, I think. I believe that certainly I agree with Candy. If there's not a spiritual awakening, something bigger than ourselves that we could work with, that will work alongside us, because there are times we're alone and we got to have something bigger with us in that room. And I'm so blessed that I've had that all my life. But to see people find that and to see families join in that and understand the whole capacity, it's amazing. And I couldn't overemphasize how important I think. I mean, family yeah. is that important to me. I have three daughters and nine grandchildren. And man, don't get me started on the grandchildren. <laughs> and we'd be here five hours. But We're I'm, not going to bad now. No, no, don't bad mouth them. They call me Nani, and that is my most favorite name yeah. I've ever had in my life. I'm Lala. She's Lala. 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 Well, yeah. hi, Lala. I, so, yes, family is extremely important, and it works to for family systems to work together. You've got to be on the same page. You've got to have education. And the normal family has pushed addiction under the rug. They haven't searched and educated themselves. So, bringing that to the forefront that, yes, your loved one's in treatment. Come on, let's educate you and bring this together so we can move forward in a positive manner. That's I right. think that works really well. I do too. I and, agree. Yeah. And Jeannie, you guys, both of you do so many family programs and work in family systems and both in interventions, candy, family programs that you both do out in California. Talk a little bit about your approach to okay. family programs. Well, you know, I lived in Texas a long time and went to, I didn't realize that I was getting in the ground floor of the addiction movement. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but <laughs> pioneers were teaching workshops at that time and conventions and conferences were not about marketers having dinners for other marketers. Amen. They were about clinicians getting to go somewhere to learn new things, new techniques, new so I was going to workshops and learning from Sharon Wegshider Cruz, Claudia Black, John Bradshaw, all these people who were writing books that the field of psychology ignored because it was, quote, pop psychology. Well, I went on to teach a course at UCLA for training counselors, and I taught psychologists 
the individual psychologist, Freud and all those, family therapists. And in the middle was a whole group of people that was bringing a new science to the world. And that was many of the ACOA movement, adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So all those people were writing and working and people, as a matter of fact, a quick story. There was a woman by the name of Janet Geringer Woetz who wrote a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics with 13 Characteristics. And she did it. It was her thesis for a doctorate program. She went to a conference in Washington and met a guy. Her luggage was lost. So she met a guy at the lost luggage, Gary Seidler, whose luggage was lost. He said, well, you're here. You're presenting. What are you presenting about? They got to talking. And she said, don't tell him about this project. And he said, that really is um, kind of describes my family. So who's publishing your book or, you know, published it? She said, no, I don't know. Well, I happen to have a little publishing company in Florida. And I thought, okay, as, quote, luck would have it or God would have it or spirit hooked them up together. That book went up to National New York Times bestseller list. Wow. And agents at that time were the only way you could really get a book published. And they were looking at each other saying, who's her agent? Who is this woman? And who is this publishing company? Well, it was Health Communications. That was the only rival to Hazelden back in those days. And now people may know Health Communications because they published all the chicken soup books after Jack Canfield had been rejected 144 times. Wow. And Health Communications took a chance on him. So I tell you all that background, not only to prove that I'm old, been here a long time, <laughs> but it was it resonated with a population that hadn't been sanctioned by the field of psychology and the publishing industry. And people would say, well, who are these people? Well, it still resonates today, but all the books are really old and 20 years old. I give them to my clients and they say, this is a really old book. And I said, yeah, it is. And you need to read it or I'm not working with you. And then I chastised myself and said, why haven't you rewritten some of this stuff? But it spoke to me. I grew up in an alcoholic home. It was a loving alcoholic home and there is such an animal. I knew I was loved. I knew we were loved. I also knew there was something that crept in under the door that nobody could do anything about. And it fractured our family. And then when working with Sharon, she had been working with Virginia Satir, who was kind of the leading family therapist out in Palo Alto, California. And Virginia would say, oh, alcoholism is a separate illness. Give me an alcoholic family. I'll take them to the woods for a week. And they'll come back and the alcoholic can be cured. And Sharon says, no, it's a separate illness. It's separate. So in a way, she broke away from the traditional family therapist. She was working for Johnson Institute at the time and published this first book called Another Chance, Hope and Health for the Family of the Alcoholic. And it was out of that book that we coined the words, the roles of the family, the hero, scapegoat, lost child, and mascot. And as a result, People would say, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. That describes it. So I do. I was doing the family workshop that I've written years ago, and this leading expert of the day was chasing all the new money in the field and said, you shouldn't be teaching the, that, those roles. It doesn't resonate. It's old. And I said to the owner of that place, I said, either I teach it or I leave. Simple as that. It works. It speaks to me. It speaks to a lot of my clients. So... I did end up leaving because they were bought by a corporation and I'm not really a corporate kind of person. 
So in about a year later, he called and said, would you come back and do the family program? I said, be happy to, but, and he said, you don't have to do anything that man says to do. I said, okay, I'll be back. And so I've tweaked that program and it's gotten better and better and better. Well, Sharon was fired for publishing that book. Wow. And she said, then I will never be under somebody's thumb again. And to this day, she and I are still friends, and I'm very indebted to her because between her and Claudia Black, it became okay for me to talk about my family and to talk about the ghosts that were in the living room. And today, it's so funny, I've talked to a lot of my high school friends on Facebook, and so many of us were living in an alcoholic home, and we never talked about it. We now talk about it. We're able to say, boy, we didn't, you know. The three rules, don't talk, don't feel, and don't trust, were operating, and they still do. It's amazing. And in talking about the spirituality or the family, the big book says, and when I say big book, it's the Alcoholics Anonymous book, not called a textbook, but it it really is one, that the spiritual life is not a theory. You have to live it. And we have to live it because we are spiritual beings. And today, some of that all has been if I can use the word bastardized, Mm -hmm. by, oh, I'm going to manifest something. So it's this whole idea is if I sit in a room and do enough meditation, I'll get a Porsche in my driveway by 10 (laughs) o'clock. That is not what we're talking about, okay? So I did a workshop, just came to me one time. I'm a teacher in my DNA, really. And I thought, it's tracing your spiritual roots. And it's one of the ones I love to do. And I, I thought, okay, what was the spiritual gift that my father gave me? What was the spiritual gift that my mother gave me? And in our family growing up, my dad refinished furniture when he could keep a job. And we had a church pew in our backyard. I don't know how that happened. I don't know whether the church said, here, refinish 50 of these, we'll give you one for payment. Or I don't know. Other people had a picnic table. We didn't. We had a church pew. My dad would be drunk and he'd be sitting on the church pew outside looking at South Texas storms and He said, let's look for tornadoes. And my sister and I would be on either side of this drunk. And he was so loving and caring, even if he was drunk. And we'd look for little tornado tails and clouds. And I was scared to death, hanging on to this drunk. Now, it forecast my relationships later on in my life, (laughs) hanging on a drunk for excitement, you know. But anyway, we'd look and and my sister would be out there. And then a thunder would happen. He'd say, okay, God's bowling. Let's count how far away. And that my poor mother was in the house trying to figure out how do you feed six people on one can of tuna, wishing yeah. strike lightning would strike us out there, probably. <laughs> and so I thought, what did she give us? And she was always taking us to church. I mean, all of us, my brother and three little girls, and she'd yank our hair back and get it all right and go to the church. And I loved the community. I loved singing in the choir. I loved being at the church suppers. I loved all that. And my dad was a good old alcoholic. I'm not going to church and sit in there with those hypocrites. And I thought, what did and at the time a year I missed them was at Easter time, not Christmas. And I thought, what is this about? So I began doing some of my own work and investigating. Like I asked my clients to be a detective. Let's not, we're not here for judgment. Let's just look at the facts. So I realized that what my dad gave me was the gift of mystery, that this higher power was something I couldn't always explain. It was the mystery that was in nature. And my mom gave us, through going to church, the gift of community. 
And that to me is how it's really started my shaman work to kind of put it all together. And so when I ended up hating God and hating the whole notion of this doesn't work, it finally dawned on me that in church, I never got the feeling of mystery, spiritual connection. In nature, I didn't have community. I just was my one little drunk and another little girl. And so it was only in the 12-step program that I got to have both the spirit of the mystery. I'd hear stories. I'd meet you, and you'd be in recovery, and then you'd tell me about what you were like before, and I'd think, wow, that's a completely changed, different human being. And, you know, and when you look at the steps and the people who say, well, I don't like it, I don't want this or that, it's like, oh, that's contempt prior to investigation, honey. You don't have any of the facts. You don't have any knowledge. And then I introduced to him, I said, there's a difference between belief and faith. Complete different. What do you mean? Well, belief is my car is broken. You tell me, go take it to Tanya. Well, I don't have any faith in her. The only way I'm going to get faith in her is I have to take action. I may have faith in you, and I believe you when you say she can fix my car. But until I pick up the phone, call you, take steps, action, give my car to you, trusting and risking that you're not going to kill it, and then I get results, then I have faith. So the steps, I can sum up the steps in one sentence. There's three steps. My higher power, steps four through seven enable me to love me it's about my relationship with the higher power and eight through 12 which then allow me to love you it has to be in that order and the 12th step is the result of this first 11 actions having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps so you're going for a spiritual awakening it is a spiritual program not a religious one right and until people understand that and, you know, it's just brilliant because Abby said to Bill, well, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Because if I go to, say, I go to your church, or I say, well, what do you believe in? You say, okay, I'm Presbyterian, and we believe in A, B, and C. And I think, eh, no, I can't do C. All right, bye. And what do you, oh, I'm Catholic. I believe in D, E, and F. Well, no, I can't do F. Oh, I'm over here. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Muslim. I'm whatever. No, I can fight with each one of you. But when you tell me to find my own conception of God, who am I going to fight with? And that's what the 12 step says. You find your own conception. And that really scared me to death because I thought, well, what if this thing is a hoax? But more importantly, what if this thing that everybody's calling God speaks to you and you and you, but won't speak to me? Then I can't fight with it. Then I'm going to have to know that I'm outside the group. I'm outside the crevasse. And so I, it's today I say there's also, I'm known as a big book thumper, that it talks about being stepping on the, from the bridge of reason onto the shore of faith. And we couldn't quite get ashore. I couldn't either. Thank you for joining us today on Understanding the Human Condition. We hope you'll join us for part two and part three with Candy Finnegan and Jeannie Griffin. As always, if you have questions about J. Flowers Health Institute, please look us up at www.jflowershealth.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day. 
And I'd like to remind everyone watching or listening to us that there are numerous platforms to find our podcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think it could help. Absolutely. And we remind you also that a clear diagnosis is key to the most effective treatment possible. Yes, it is. See you next Thanks week. Thanks again, Robin. Thank yep. you.